This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. The exhibit How to Measure a Forest Works on Paper remains on exhibit at the Fred and Mary Smith Exhibition Hall in Vol Walker Hall on the University of Arkansas campus after opening last week. It's a new body of work by Laura Terry, an associate professor of architecture in the Faye Jones School, featuring nearly 30 pieces from 4 by 4 inches to 48 by 72 inches. Hours of the gallery, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, admission free. The intent of the work to show the forest at micro and macro scales. We'll take some up-close and in-depth looks at a few subjects today. In our second half hour, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich attended last week's Medical Marijuana Expo in Springdale to find out what vendors and medical professionals say about the drug. We'll start, though, with Kayla Cochran, Chair and Faculty of the History and Social Sciences Department at Thaden School in Bentonville. This month, she received a Fulbright Teachers for Global Classrooms Program Award. The award can allow her to continue pursuing a field of teaching she's been developing during her career. Last week, I met with her at Thaden to talk about courses she created and has taught at Thaden School. Last year, she taught three elective classes, one each trimester with a global focus. One is called Strangers in a Strange Land, the Literature of New Immigration. This was a course I had designed to help students think through issues of immigration in our community. Northwest Arkansas is a fascinating place to be asking those kinds of questions because we have folks who are coming from the Marshall Islands. We have an increasing number of folks coming from Latin America. We have folks who are moving here to work for Walmart and for J.B. Hunt. So. Um, Northwest Arkansas, I learned when I moved here, has the fourth fastest growing rate of the immigrant population in the country. So this is a place where we really should be asking questions about what it means to belong to a community, how we welcome new folks into our community, um, and how the community adapts to new populations as well. So that course, students read short stories about different themes related to immigration post-1965. And because it was a community-based learning course, we worked with local individuals and organizations to consider whether the stories we were reading in class aligned with or diverged from the experiences of immigrants in our community. So the students through that process were able to talk to um, MacArthur Genius Award winner Dina Mangestu about his experience writing immigrant literature and whether or not that's a productive category at all and what we gain and what we lose when we collapse literature into that particular genre. Um, they also hosted and designed a panel for employees at Thaden and community members, parents who themselves are immigrants in our community and they got to ask questions based off the literature they had read. And we actually, funnily enough, only got through two questions just because the, the questions they had designed were so rich and meaningful that we had a bunch of folks around the table who were really eager to share their stories. That class last autumn also worked with Canopy NWA, an organization assisting refugees coming to the region, to organize a supply drive to help refugees from Afghanistan. Last winter, Kayla taught another new course, Peace and Conflict Studies. She says that class for 11th and 12th graders considered the philosophical dimensions of violence. You know, are humans naturally violent? The answer is no. Um, and if that's true, then what does that mean for how we build what we call negative peace, which is the absence of violence, and then positive peace, which is institutions that sustain a thriving environments for individuals around the world. Um, so we looked at, you know, the 
philosophical and historical questions, but also the practical questions, like what is happening in the United Nations and what is the function of that organization and is it working effectively and what recommendations do students have for how to make that organization better at what it is supposed to be doing. We looked at the human rights declaration. Um, we finished up looking at some case studies of how students would engage as peacemakers in processes in conflict zones. Finally, last spring, she led 11th and 12th graders in a class called Case Studies in International Trade. And so these students were really looking broadly at globalization and how the landscape has shifted in the last 20 or 30 years. So they were looking at contemporary writers, Thomas Friedman, um, and thinking about who the winners and losers of globalization have been specifically through a trade lens. So um, a little bit of market economics there, but also that was a great opportunity for us to consider questions like, do sanctions work, right? Because this is when Russia had invaded Ukraine. So what was really interesting is that I had some students throughout the whole year or in one or two of the, in, in, you know, two or more of those courses. And as the students were going through and as I was going through, it was really interesting to hear them make connections across three courses that had been designed individually, but, but really were interconnected because um, violence and economic safety and peace, all of those things are related. And so the more work I did designing those individual courses, the more interested I became in thinking through these big picture questions about what it means to be a person in the world and how do we make sense of all of the chaos that's coming at us at any given time and how does a young person make sense of all of that when they too are going through a process of development in their own identities. She calls the process of creating three new courses enriching but told her students the classes were pilot projects and she sought feedback. When I start with curriculum design, I think about, well, what are questions that I really want to ask with students? And again, those are the questions that I don't have the answers to. Um, teachers are not we're not, you know, um, we're not just here to instill knowledge. I mean, I see myself as a facilitator in helping students make sense of themselves and the world around them. So I think about what questions do I feel like I'm interested in? And will students also be interested in asking those questions? Kayla Cochran says she wants the curriculum she develops to have a life beyond the week's spent in the classroom. She wants the courses to empower students to be able to walk into a conversation with an expert in a specific field. She also wants students to consider the major voices involved in a current subject like violence and read their words, making sure that those texts are coming from a wide variety of perspectives. Finally, she says her experience of moving to Northwest Arkansas after growing up and working in the Northeast and having no idea of what her new home might be like influences her connection to her students. One really humbling part of that process has been thinking through what expertise my students are bringing to the classroom about their own communities. And the thing I love so much about Thaden and why I think place-based education is really important, which is what we're doing with our signatures programs and our community-based learning, is that the best resource we have for understanding big phenomena is what's happening in our backyards. And my students know that much better than I do. And so to ignore that knowledge, I think would be a real disservice to the classroom community we're trying to create. So 
having students come in and say, I'm interested in this, or I want to know more about this, or this is what I know from my family's experiences is work I try to do even in my history classes with my ninth grade students. Um, because learning is, is an active verb. Um, you know, I think our, our dean of academics will say like, there's just young learners and there are older learners. And I happen to be an older learner in this particular space. Studying violence, conflict, immigration, and similar subjects can be tough. I asked Kayla Cochran how she approaches the need to discuss potentially sensitive matters. She says she tries to give students the language to help them process what they may see or hear in their daily consumption of news, information, and social media. If we think our students aren't, aren't encountering depictions of violence on TV or on the news, we probably... We probably, you know, are, are um, a little bit disillusioned. And so students are encountering that. And it's not necessarily about the exposure in the classroom. I think it's about, again, giving students the language to understand and to talk about and to figure out what do I do when I see that? What is my, what's an appropriate emotional response? Or I'm feeling overwhelmed about the news. How do I manage that response? So, you know, in the classroom, I try to be thoughtful about what that looks like. What I show in a ninth grade classroom is not the same as what I would show with, with 12th graders. Um, but I do try to say, hey, this is what's coming up, right? Um, content warnings can be really useful because they allow students the agency and the flexibility to engage to the degree they want. So if we're going to watch a clip, I might say, um, you know, at this mark, I will let you know that you're about to see X. So if you'd like to, you can close your eyes or block your ears or you're welcome to step out of the classroom at any moment. And I, I like to encourage students not to make judgments about why other students are responding in the way that they are. Um, I also like to be available to students in office hours or to chat. And a lot of the work that we do in the classroom involves processing what we're seeing on an emotional level as well as an intellectual level. We are people with feelings. And so engaging, even talking about World War II, for example, with my ninth graders, there's a lot of heaviness that comes with that kind of historical event that we have to acknowledge. You know, we don't walk into the classroom and leave our feelings behind. And I think the most effective form of learning is when students are authentically engaging in what they are feeling and what they are thinking and being able to have the language to articulate those things. Kayla Cochran is chair and faculty of the History and Social Sciences Department at Thaden School in Bentonville and spoke with us at the school last week. She received a Fulbright Teachers for Global Classrooms Program Award earlier this month. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Fayetteville Animal Shelter and Services, supported by the City of Fayetteville, and dedicated to the welfare of animals and the people who associate with them. Information at 444-3456 or Fayetteville Animal Services on Facebook. Billions of dollars in student loan debt owed by Arkansans could be forgiven as a result of the Biden administration's new student loan forgiveness plan. The program, announced last week, will cancel $10,000 of student debt for most people making less than $125,000 a year. Tony Williams, director of the Arkansas Student Loan Authority, says a lot of people in the state are likely to benefit. What that means big picture in Arkansas is a uh probably a savings or, or forgiveness of $2.5 billion to $3 billion, most likely, affecting probably at least 350,000 student loan borrowers in Arkansas. And so, I mean, it's very significant. 
it's an incredible gift to those, uh, those student loan borrowers. The plan also forgives $20,000 of debt for recipients of Pell Grants, which are typically for undergraduate college students with exceptional financial need. Williams says the president's plan could potentially lead to more students choosing to take out loans to fund their education. Today, we're at $13 to $14 billion in student loan debt in the state. That will immediately drop if forgiveness actually happens. And then uh, we'll probably return to those levels within the next five years. I would say this is a bit of a Band-Aid, not a long-term solution to, for, the, uh, you know, for making higher education more affordable. Williams says he'd like to see more action from the federal government to address the high interest rates of student loans. He says Arkansans with student debt should remain patient for more guidance from the federal government. And Arkansas reports a drop in active cases of COVID-19 in yesterday's observations. The Department of Health's website shows 634 fewer people are listed as having a current case of the virus compared with Sunday numbers for a total of about 10,000 active cases right now. Hospitalizations were up by 10, with 324 people being treated statewide. No additional deaths were reported. This is Ozarks at Large. Longtime Bentonville restaurant staple Fred's Hickory Inn is switching hands and introducing some changes. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports it's the newest addition to the Table Mesa restaurant group, and it will have a new menu. Its custom smoke pit, which has been used for 52 years, will still be operational. Off Walton Boulevard in Bentonville, part of Fred's Hickory Inn's black and white sign is draped over with a temporary orange cover. Workers are raking layers of mulch and worked flower beds as people inside the newly renamed table at the Hickory Inn, formerly Fred's, work in the back. Wooden tables and a few booths are neatly arranged in one of the restaurant's large rooms, and sitting at a table on his laptop is Carl Garrett, the new co-owner of the restaurant. He and his wife Lindy bought the inn after Randy Lawson, who owned it for over 17 years, approached them about the property. I've always had a passion for food and just for the, the relationship piece to it. It's fun, it's energetic. It can be challenging and difficult with long hours and typically you're working when people are not working and you're eating when they've already have eaten, but we're in the service business, so we're, we're here to serve. This will be the Garrett's fifth restaurant in the Table Mesa group, which includes Table Mesa and Marabella's Table. Garrett says his goal is to bring new ideas and a fresh coat of paint to the 52-year-old restaurant, while leaning into some traditional aspects of the inn, like serving in a 1970s style. You know, I'm, I'm excited to bring something fresh and, um, and again, I would say a little creative, a little innovative in a setting such as this. So there's a lot of dichotomy to this. So you, you kind of have a little bit of an older setting with modern food. 
At 15, Garrett fell into the restaurant business when he got a job in the kitchen of a hotel and worked his way up. Then he and his wife opened a restaurant in Seattle. They moved to northwest Arkansas in 2008 because they wanted to be in an area that is good for growth. Obviously seemed to be the best, best choice for us. The inn opened in 1970 when Fred and Lou Gay bought the old church campgrounds and its five structures. They converted the shower building into a smoke pit, and the dormitory became the original restaurant. As the years went on, the cabin dating back to the 1890s turned into part of the inn, and another building on the property, a rock, A-framed house, burned. The menu weaved Fred's enjoyment of smoking meat and Lou's Italian background. At the time, this was one of the only things in Bentonville, a town which now has hundreds of businesses. Susan Kennedy first walked into the restaurant in 1972. Out-of-town guests were always brought here. This was just the favorite place. And that was even after there was a lot more competition. Our early days, it was here or nothing. <laughs> and uh, transportation was not as great. The roads weren't as great. So you really... You had to travel a long time to get to other places like Fayetteville. She moved to the state to earn her degree at the University of Arkansas, decided to stay in the region, and became an event planner. She went on to own the first event center in Benton County. What are you most excited about when, as this place has switched hands and going to reopen with the new, new aspects of things? And what are you most excited about? It's, it's new. She started working at the inn four years ago after she sold her business. Kennedy remembers planning events at the restaurant and memories of receptions, birthdays, her parents' ritualistic Sunday brunch, and Lou's centennial celebration. I think that the, the most, the one that brought tears to everybody's eyes is Miss Lou, you know, Fred and Lou Gay. At one point, she, her, uh, Fred passed away. And she, uh, but she lived to be over 100 years old, and they actually celebrated her 100th birthday right here at Fred's. So that brought a lot, of, a lot of tears to eyes and a lot of memories to people. Kennedy says some people may be disappointed about the changes to the restaurant, but others are eager for what the new owners make of it. Garrett says introducing new things is how the restaurant business industry operates. Um, I, I think Fred's is overdue for an overhaul. Um, all restaurants are, even Table Mesa. You know, we, it's a business of constant innovation and tweaking. And so it would be nice if you could just leave things in a time capsule, but it's not realistic or practical. So I think in this particular case, to, um, but we like the, you know, the, the setting and all of that. And that brings, I think, a lot more memories to people. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are some food elements that would do that as well. But I would say for the most part, there will be a, um, a, a new menu uh, implementation. Four Ozarks at large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope.
Farmers in multiple counties in north and west Arkansas are now eligible for emergency loans after those counties were declared primary disaster areas. With the declaration, the USDA's Farm Service Agency can extend emergency credit to producers recovering from natural disasters. The loans can be applied to purchase of replacement of essential items such as equipment or livestock, reorganization of a farming operation, or the refinance of certain debts. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, those counties suffered from drought intensity values ranging from severe to exceptional. On the season three premiere of Undiscipline, we talked to Joy McGowan about mental health and the experiences for black women. Racial stress doesn't actually end, right? I wake up black, I go to sleep black, I'm still black. <laughs> Listen for free on KUAF.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, the KUAF produced show Resilient Black Women is starting season number two. Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson are back to discuss mental health and equitable access to mental health. On the first episode of the second season of Resilient Black Women, Joy and Denisha welcome Ms. Dorothy Marcy, licensed professional counselor, educator, mentor, mother, and proud black woman. She shares insight and stories from her own life and her recent trip to Egypt and celebrates the resiliency and beauty of black women. Here's just a portion from that episode. I know when I was a child growing up, my oldest brother had some struggles, and I was always so mad at my parents because they wouldn't get help for him. Mm-hmm. What did I know about what help was available to a little black boy mm-hmm. back in the 40s and 50s? Zero. Mm-hmm. There was no help. There was no professional psychologist, psych counselor, psychiatrist who would work with that child. Mm-hmm. And there was no fam- black family who could afford it mm-hmm. if they would. Mm. And I think that piece of our history is still is still with us to some extent that we don't come from a culture that accesses those services for for many reasons, those, mm-hmm. I think, you know, being the main ones. Yeah, we didn't have access no, to those services. No, we didn't. And, and then there was just the whole cultural perspective, white and black, mm-hmm. on needing psychological help, needing counseling, the idea of being crazy. Yes. You know, um, yeah. I personally believe that that is a made-up word. Mm-hmm. You cannot lose your mind. You will always have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. yes. I love that reframe. <laughs> That's so true. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have some struggles. Mm-hmm. And so I know it is very difficult for us to seek out counseling. And really... I recommend that black folk get a black counselor. I really Mm -hmm. do. You have to have somebody who knows your history. Mm -hmm. And I mean not just the history from slavery. Mm -hmm. The society that we live in makes it look like we stepped into slavery out of a void. Mm -hmm. That we had no culture. We had no history. We had no background, no mm-hmm. nothing. And I heard someone say the other day, um, if a thousand page book was written about Afri- African American history, the last two pages would be about slavery. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We have a long and deep and rich 
culture that we come from. Even right? before, yeah. And so the world doesn't know that, and neither do we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We don't either, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I want to go back to something that you said that I think is really important that we try to keep before our listeners all the time is although we may be black women and we are trying to speak specifically to how black women or black people should engage with mental health, what you're saying or what you said earlier was there was a stigma for all of us. Oh, yeah. That it was something for everybody because even as I've heard you talk about counseling, the field of counseling and psychology before, um, of just recognizing how it started with a white man, um, white men studying other white men. (laughs) Yes. And so that, I mean, that takes out white women, that takes out, right? Oh, so much. All of everybody. Yeah. Unless you were a rich white man, of course you don't think counseling is for you. And also, if you're not a rich white man, you're not mentally healthy. If you were going to create something, wouldn't you make it like you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology, Mm -hmm. what is meant being mentally healthy? Mm -hmm. Male, wealthy, white, Mm -hmm. um, owning class, all these things. Mm -hmm. So the further you are from that, the further you are from mental health mm-hmm. and the more you can behave in those ways. Mm-hmm. Ways that we would yeah, say are we know you can't be white and, and male, yes. but you can act like them. Yes. And if you behave in that way mm. in our society, that is mental health. But mm. if you behave like black folk... Mm. I don't know. Y'all are pretty loud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, y'all laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, y'all don't have good boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to use my profession to shape somebody, mm. to help them to fit into what I consider an oppressive society. Mm-hmm. My perspective is that I want to be an asset to you becoming you, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. I don't have any judgments about it, and I don't have any goals for you. I often, when somebody comes in to see me, my spiel is this. (laughs) You come to see a counselor because you feel lost, Mm. and you're looking for someone who's not lost, and that is not me. (laughs) Mm, I love it. (laughs) I don't have all of my answers, and I don't have any of yours. Mm -hmm. I am just not lost in your woods. That is the only difference. Mm -hmm. But worse than being lost is being lost and alone. Mm -hmm. My job is the alone part. Mm -hmm. I will hold your hand while you find your way. And that's all I can do. You can hear the entire episode that starts the second season of Resilient Black Women at KUAF.com or by going to your preferred major podcast distributor. Denisha Simpson and Joy McGowan are back for the new season. Their guest this time was Dorothy Marcy. This is Ozarks at Large. KUAF Giving Tree Back to School Edition is accepting school supply donations through the end of the month. Many children and families are struggling with prices of supplies, so we're asking our great community to help out. 
Bring new school supplies to KUAF at 9 South School in Fayetteville. We're specifically hoping to help junior high and high school students with items like Expo markers, Post-it notes, black or neutral backpacks, and more. Help students start the school year with everything they need. For more, KUAF.com. And we have been able to pass along your school supply contributions several times this month. We will do another donation with all of the supplies that are brought to our giving tree at 9 South School through the end of the day tomorrow. Thanks once again for all of your help. This is Ozarks at Large. Hundreds of consumers and industry stakeholders attended the third annual Medical Marijuana and CBD Wellness Expo this past weekend in Springdale. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The Medical Marijuana and CBD Wellness Expo staged at the Northwest Arkansas Convention Center in Springdale over the weekend spanned two days. The Saturday Expo was designed for patients and curious customers. The entry fee, just 10 bucks, but Friday's trade show and conference was a closed industry networking event for medical cannabis cultivation facilities, dispensaries, CBD farms, test labs, medical clinics, legal and security firms, as well as political activists and state agencies. Interviews with industry experts titled Between Two Plants, Marijuana Plants, an iteration of the comedy talk show Between Two Ferns, opened with Scott Harden. He's spokesperson for the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration, the State Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, and the Arkansas Medical Marijuana Commission that's charged with licensing and regulating the industry. Uh, hands down, the most significant subject that I talk about is medical marijuana simply because uh, the public's interested in it. There is so much. Arkansas voters approved a ballot initiative to legalize medical marijuana six years ago, but implementation in this conservative majority state took several more years, Harden said after his talk. Arkansans approved medical marijuana back in November of 2016, um, but then there was a significant gap where Patients were frustrated. Everyone was frustrated because the market just wasn't happening. Um, but then finally, in May of 2019, that first dispensary opened. And since that time, things have really started moving. Today, we have 38 dispensaries in the state. We have eight growers. Um, we have about 90,000 patients, which we initially thought that it'd be 40 to 50,000. So uh, to say we were off would be a bit of an understatement. How much CBD is there? The proof can be seen next door in the exhibit hall where 20 Arkansas-based medical marijuana vendors were on display. Storm Nolan and one of the partners at River Valley Relief Cultivation. So we've been uh, open and selling product now for under a year and uh, so far it's been it's been great to, to be in the business and to serve Arkansas patients and so we're here to, to meet our colleagues in the business and people are interested uh, from outside the business to, of learning more. Uh, my name is Chris Gibson, and I'm licensed by the state of Arkansas to process medical cannabis, the cannabis grown by cultivators and by dispensaries, and then provide products to the patients through the dispensaries throughout Arkansas. Since medical cannabis was legalized in Arkansas in 2016, patients have spent nearly $700 million, according to state data, closing in on a billion-dollar industry. Over 50,000 pounds of medical pot are expected to be sold this year, a record amount, and state Revenue from the medical cannabis industry so far totals over $76 million, collected through a 6% sales tax and a 4% privilege tax. Most of that donated to University of Arkansas for medical sciences for research. 
only clinically approved Arkansas Department of Health registered patients can purchase lab-tested medical cannabis to treat 18 qualifying conditions, from arthritis to Alzheimer's disease. My name is David Harris. I'm the president of Harris International Labs and AA Analytics in Springdale. We have a testing laboratory where we do state-required testing on all flour, all uh, edibles, uh, extracts, anything that has THC Delta 9 in it. We are required to go down, take samples, bring back, and test for not only for the state, but also for the grower and for consumers to understand what's in the product that they're ingesting. 37 states have legalized and regulated the sale of medical marijuana to adults over 21. 19 states in the District of Columbia so far have legalized adult-use recreational pot, even though cannabis remains federally outlawed, resulting in scant research and no federal regulatory oversight. But despite these barriers, cannabis horticulture has greatly progressed, where today's marijuana cultivars or strains, Harris says, are extremely potent. It's a, uh, a very high-tech agricultural uh, industry, and uh, they're very concerned about every aspect of how, how good their product is. I mean, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a market-driven product, so I mean, if they're not putting out good product, somebody else will put out good product. The Medical Marijuana and CBD Wellness Expo is co-sponsored by the Arkansas Cannabis Industry Association. Bill Paschal serves as executive director. So we're an industry association. We represent the growers and the sellers and then all the ancillary businesses. So as uh, most folks know, we have a very limited license industry in Arkansas. There's 38 dispensaries and there's eight cultivators. And then there's a host of folks that um, provide services to uh, those growers and cultivators that we represent. The other expo co-sponsor is the Arkansas Times. Alan Leverett is longtime publisher. And our mission here is to educate consumers about how to use medical marijuana safely and effectively to address whatever symptoms that they're trying to deal with. The Arkansas Times, published in Little Rock, is a statewide magazine of politics and culture which frequently covers and editorially supports the medical marijuana industry in Arkansas. First of all, it's a, it's a civil liberties issue as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and uh, the idea that we are uh, finally recognizing some of the uh, potential health benefits of medical marijuana, I think that's very interesting. Second of all, no one else is going to do it. The, the Democrat Gazette is again it. The radio and television stations, they're regulated by the FCC, so they can't do it. So who else is going to do it but the Arkansas Times? We have the marketing reach, we have the web reach, uh, and we've been very, very effective in terms of doing these events. On Saturday, the public day, dispensary operators and bud tenders, store clerks from all over the state were on hand to showcase medical marijuana and CBD products to consumers, along with cannabis clinicians. On hand was Dr. Brian Nickel, an anesthesiologist who specializes in using cannabis for chronic pain management. There are a variety of different ways to administer cannabis. Probably the most convenient one is a topical administration, usually a, a cream or a lotion that can be applied. Probably the most popular and common way is the inhalation route of administration, typically using flour which makes dose titration, figuring out the dose that's really most appropriate for you, very intuitive. You have one puff of it, wait several minutes. If you don't have adequate symptom improvement, you go ahead and have another dose of it. 
Today's medical cannabis, which contains Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, the main compound responsible for the drug's psychoactive effect, data show can be 300% more potent and cultivated to be rich in beneficial cannabinoids and terpenes. Many processed remedies also contain CBD, cannabidiol, a popular natural remedy available over-the-counter derived from new potent hemp cultivars. Medical marijuana is not sold by prescription, leaving patients to choose remedies through trial and error. Nichols says many prefer smoking, vaping, or consuming cannabis-infused edibles candy and baked goods, but he recommends tinctures, small vials filled with medical marijuana-infused liquid administered with glass droppers. They're very easy to administer, just uh, some liquid underneath your tongue. They're relatively quickly absorbed, which makes dose titration a little bit more difficult than the inhaled drop, but still very doable for patients. They tend to be much longer lasting, which makes them more cost-effective. More than 100 turned out on Friday for the Industry Expo, with over 250 attending the Public Expo. No free samples were available, but registered patients were able to purchase remedies and question dispensary owners and cannabis cultivators. There was also a great deal of discussion on compliance and market changes if a constitutional amendment legalizing recreational marijuana is approved by Arkansas voters this midterm election. Like the medical marijuana ballot, the recreational ballot measure gathered plenty of voter signatures, but the ballot title was rejected by the State Election Commission on a technicality. Recreational marijuana sponsor Responsible Growth Arkansas has appealed that decision to the Arkansas Supreme Court. Again, Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration spokesperson Scott Harden. From here, it's just a matter of whether or not the Supreme Court decides if the votes count. It's going to be on the ballot. It's just a matter of if that vote counts. So uh, that's where we are now. And from the state level, you know, we would, the, the ABC, the state's Alcoholic Beverage Control Division, would be in charge of issuing these licenses to the recreational dispensaries. The Medical Marijuana Commission would continue to exist but wouldn't play a role in any of that. So ABC would be in charge of issuing those licenses. And actually, the first set would go out in March of 23. So it's a... If it were to pass in November, it would all happen quickly. And essentially hybridize Arkansas's medical marijuana market supply chain to accommodate a portion of Arkansas's new recreational marijuana production and distribution. If passed, adults 21 and over could legally possess up to an ounce of industrial-grown pot. Homegrown weed will remain illegal. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. You can see a slideshow of the Expo produced by Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth right now at OzarksAtLarge.com. We're coming up on Labor Day. A reminder that much of the music that was recorded at the Fayetteville Public Library this weekend, uh, free if you could make it, but if you couldn't, it will be on our Labor Day show hosted by Timothy Dennis. That's Monday, the Labor Day edition of Ozarks at Large. All right, that's Labor Day. Do you mind if we talk about September 10th for a few minutes? Because there's plenty going on on September 10th. Bentonville will observe the Keep America Beautiful Great Arkansas Cleanup by organizing a citywide Clean the Streets Day Saturday, September 9th. Or that's September 10th from 9 until noon. The Great Arkansas Cleanup takes place each fall. It's the nation's largest community improvement effort. Volunteers still needed to help pick up litter along Bentonville City streets, trails, and drainage ways. 
trash bags, safety vests, and gloves will be provided. Details at the 2022 Clean the Streets page at Sign Up Genius. The Clinton Presidential Center will open Women's Voices, Women's Votes, Women's Rights on September 10th. This will take place at the Presidential Center in Little Rock. The multimedia exhibition explores the risks that women and their male allies took on to win the vote, expand democracy, and elevate human rights throughout the past two centuries. This was originally scheduled to open in September 2020 to commemorate the centennial of the 19th Amendment's ratification. The exhibition's opening was delayed because of COVID-19. It will stay open through April 30th, 2023. Artifacts included in the exhibition, Declaration of Sentiments from the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, printed in the Long Island Democrat newspaper. That was in August 1848, plus the Arkansas General Assembly resolution ratifying the 19th Amendment and much more. More details can be found at the Women's Voices Exhibit.org. The inaugural Shire Fest will take place Saturday, September 10th. This is at the Shire Post Mint. If that location sounds familiar to you, you might have heard Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore's report earlier this year about the Mint, a locally owned, family-run fantasy coining operation in West Fork. This will be the first public event since the Mint opened its doors to walk-in customers in October of last year. This takes place at their custom-designed building, workshop, and retail space. There will be area craftspeople with specialty goods for sale, including clothes, books, jewelry, beauty and wellness products, leather, candles, gaming, accessory, arts, crafts, and more. There will be live music, other performances. There will be games and activities going on throughout the day, as well as food and drink. Costumes are encouraged. Shirefest will also celebrate the opening of other spaces throughout their grounds. It's 10 to 6, September 10th. You can learn more at shirepost.com. Finally, canines will have their day at the Aquatic Center in Siloam Springs on September 10th. NWA Tailwaggers will host a pool potty. That's like a paw, P-A-W-T-Y, from 10 until 2 that day. Dogs can hang out at the Aquatic Center and can also participate in any number of activities, including musical paws, a doggy dance-off, a canine course, and a doggy look-alike contest. Cost is $10 per pet. This serves as a fundraiser for NWA Tailwaggers, a nonprofit dedicated to improving the lives of pets and their owners through education, promotion of spaying and neutering, and assisting otherwise abandoned, abused, and neglected animals through fostering and promoting their adoption from Siloam Springs, West Siloam Springs, Decatur, and Gravit Animal Shelters. You can learn much more at nwatailwaggers.org. Without further ado, Miss Purit Coco. The July performance from KUAF's Lunch Hour series featuring Pura Coco is up on KUAF's YouTube page now. Plus, the Lunch Hour conversation featuring Irvin and Ethan speaking with Pura and Mo from Mo's Tacos is also up and available. Just search YouTube for KUAF Lunch Hour. This is Ozarks at Large. The list of topics that can elicit divisive debate grows. In recent days, the release of a redacted affidavit connected to the search of former President Trump's Florida residents and a student loan forgiveness executive action from current President Biden have inspired loud declarations, all caps tweets, and snarky memes, and provided fodder for this week's conversation between Roby Brock, from our partner, Talk Business and Politics, and John Brummett, 
a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Roby first asked John Brummett about the ever-developing case regarding the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump took off from the White House with classified documents he should not have taken off with, stored them at his joint down there, had to be asked, pressured to send back some, messed around and wouldn't agree to send back more, wound up getting uh, his home searched because the National Archives was concerned to the point that it uh, activated the Justice Department. That, that's it. Uh, that's it. Either you think, well, good, he ought to be able to take all the classified documents he wants and, and, and treat them any way he wants, or he shouldn't. I say he shouldn't. Whether that's indictable, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to say. Uh, but that's, that's the story. Now, in matters like this, yeah, uh, the, the, the investigators, federal investigators, are not to talk about the case uh, before, for fear of prejudice, prejudicing their own position or uh, prejudicing uh, uh, the, the defendant or the person being investigated. Uh, let, let the facts come out. But the, politi- the, the, the story became this nation is so horribly divided, and this is such an extraordinary thing that we've got to explain to the people why this happened. I oppose that notion at the time. I oppose it now because the affidavit comes out. You, you want to know the upshot of the affidavit? People who previously believed Trump ought to be indicted say, look here, we told you, look what he did. People who uh, are on Trump's side say, look here. Uh, they say they went to these rooms and these rooms. How did they know to go there? Well, everything's blacked out before that. There's no coherent narrative here. They've blacked out everything. This is worthless. This doesn't prove anything unless by blacking it out, it, it makes it even more suspicious. So have we gained anything? in terms of investigative insight that serves the nation's divide? No, no. We've just poked at it, uh, uh, made it, made it worse. Uh, So, so, I mean, there is not enough supportive information in that affidavit to change anybody's mind. It told you in unredacted parts, yeah, they did that, they did that because, yeah, here's the situation. But here's all this blacked out area, which would maybe put that in more context. So we get more information, less context, more uh, more uh, facts, less uh, less information worthy or helpful toward a judgment. And it's just typical of uh, where we are uh, politically and uh, culturally right now. You mentioned that as a divisive issue. Another divisive issue that's been swirling in national politics this past week has been the student loan uh, debt forgiveness uh, that or forgiveness that uh, President Biden signed uh, into there. Um, I guess I'd like your take on that. I'd also like for you to just make some sort of prediction. What do you think Bubba over there in the used car sales lot would think about this student loan debt forgiveness? Oh, Roby, what a uh, great minds, I got to tell you. Uh, This is a week in which I have to produce an extra column for next Tuesday so that I and the editor may have Labor Day off. I always, on those occasions, call my old friend Bubba McCoy and uh, and do an extra column based on what he's thinking. And when I called him, when I'm going to call him Wednesday, I've already written it. And it's going to say I called him Wednesday. When I'm going to call him Wednesday, he's going to be locked and loaded because uh, 
he's going to say, look here, I toted all these car notes all this time. I guess I should have charged people a lot more than the car was worth. And, and then uh, just let the government, Joe Biden, come in and pay off the loan for them, giving me all that money I uh, over, uh, overcharged and taking them off the hook for debts they incurred. Isn't, the way, isn't that the way it's supposed to work in Joe Biden's world? So that's what Baba says about it. Now, he wants to know what I say about it. <clears throat> and I tell him, see, you just happened on this thing. Uh, I, I tell him, this thing is so complex and the Republicans have done such a good job of spending this as an attack on the working man. There are reasons, there's context. Uh, higher education is horribly overpriced in this country. That's problem one, we need to do something about that. But there are people who, who, who practiced their education ethic and who have had to go into the world with burdensome, oppressive debt, and this forgives a part of it. It's not a horrible attack on the working man, it's not socialism, but you can reasonably disagree. And you disagree on the point that Bubba presents, which is debts are to be repaid. Costs are to, uh, uh, price gouging, which you could argue that higher education is doing with some of, the, some of the admission charges, is not to be rewarded. This is the government uh, ill-serving the situation. So yet another divisive issue uh, that, that we're going to, you, you want how this works out politically? I think there are a whole lot of people who may want to vote Democratic because they got some necessary, some very helpful relief on, on, their, on their student loans. I think there are a whole lot more working folks going to get stirred up by the notion that certain people get bailed out on their debt, fueled by the Republican rhetoric on this, that'll fire up the other side. These midterms get more and more interesting uh, nearly every week. Uh, in terms of who's going to turn out, who's going to be motivated. John Brummett is a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He can be read at ArkansasOnline.com. Roby Brock is with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. Much more from their discussion can be found at TalkBusiness.net. Tomorrow on a Wednesday, Ozarks at Large, Famous Hardware on Emma in downtown Springdale is going through another artistic facelift. So we are creating an interior installation as well. So we're going to have all of these really fabric or really vibrant, colorful fabrics hanging. And it's going to create kind of like a diorama that you're going to be able to see from the outside door. And then there's going to be a big sculpture that's going to sit in the middle of that space. We visited with Nashville-based artist Amelia Briggs last week as she was just getting started with a new public art installation in that historic building. What she told us about her work can be heard on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen through the free 
Ozarks at Large podcast. And keep your ears and eyes open for the next podcast from Startup Junkie. Caleb and Jeff at Startup Junkie invited Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore and me to their space in downtown Fayetteville yesterday to discuss what we do here and how a public radio station and a program like Ozarks at Large share qualities with entrepreneurs. That episode of the Startup Junkie podcast will be available soon. The Startup Junkie podcast, by the way, can be found through Apple, Google, and Spotify feeds. KUAF may be the only station you tune to on your radio dial. Or maybe KUAF.com is your homepage, where you connect every morning with one of our digital streams and catch up on local stories from Ozarks at Large, national stories from NPR, and more. Maybe you start your day with Morning Edition and end your day with classical music on KUAF. And you may have a Saturday routine that revolves around Weekend Edition and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The fact is, tens of thousands of our neighbors and friends do the exact same thing. They tune in for news, entertainment, and more from their public radio station. It's the support from thousands of our listeners that makes all of this and more possible. Join with your neighbors and friends and make a contribution to KUAF during our fall fundraising month of September. Keep your listening routine strong by supporting these programs with a one-time or a monthly gift at supportkuaf.com. And thanks for all your support for so many years, your support of Public Radio KUAF and Ozarks at Large. And when you're supporting 91.3 KUAF, you're supporting more, right? There's also KUAF 2, 24-hour-a-day classical music that you can listen to for free when you use your HD radio in your car or at your home. If you stream through KUAF.com, if you ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF 2. You can also ask for KUAF 3, which is jazz throughout the week, again, 24-7. Also, offering rebroadcasts of our locally produced music programs uh, through the weekend. That, too, available through the KUAF.com stream, through your smart speaker, and through your HD radio. Both of those stations provided to you for free, as are the podcasts, like Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, and others. Thank you again for not just supporting us, but allowing us to grow to offer you more free services around the clock, around the year. You can support us at supportkuaf.com. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Van Buren. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. We've been your NPR station since 1985. Contributors to our program today included Anna Pope, Jacqueline Froelich, Roby Brock, Joy McGowan, and Denisha Simpson. Timothy Dennis produced today's program inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. Lee Wood, our general manager, produces the podcast Resilient Black Women. You can find it and our other podcasts at KUAF.com. Additional content today came from our partners at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. We will be with you again tomorrow with a brand new show at noon and 7 p.m. Take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.